at NASA flying formation with the space shuttle on a spacewalk with a jetpack. Pretty hard to beat. You know, that was probably the best time of my life. You know, it's just an experience that's unequaled. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Rocket, a.k.a. Rob I Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Carl Mead. Carl is an astronaut. This guy has been in space numerous times, and I've never met an astronaut before. And it was an amazing conversation, and he is an amazing person, and I am super excited to share his journey with you. So if you have ever want to learn more about being a better leader, finding a career that fulfills you, and what are things that are more important than money, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, the importance of not faking a leadership style. Can't really fake it in space. Number two, how reputation and loyal customers can help you survive the tough times. Three, why do people become astronauts? How much do they get paid? What's a day in the life like? Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Now, quick disclaimer about this episode. The sound quality of this episode may not be great for you, but it, the content is just so damn good, I had to share it with you. Now, this is a full-length interview from a video we put on YouTube that's gone viral called Asking 80-Year-Old Millionaires If It Was Worth It. Many of you kept asking for the full-length interview, and this is one of those conversations that's so good that I had to share. If you actually want to see the video, you can go to youtube.com slash okdork and check it out. Enjoy the episode. If y'all aren't signed up for AppSumo.com, it is the best site to buy or sell software. If you are looking to start a growing online business and you need tools for it, go to AppSumo.com. I am sure you're going to find something that's an insane deal and you're going to love it. AppSumo.com. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener JDWill5. They left a review saying, love the simple tips. Noah has always emailed simple, actionable tips about things he's done that I can do in my business. This podcast is a great way to hear some of these directly from his guests or the man himself. Keep up the good work. You keep up the great work too, Jay. Thank you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. I truly love y'all. And if you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave a review anywhere. Leave it on a piece of paper at home. I will find it and we'll put you on this. I check every single one of them. I am curious how much an astronaut makes. Yeah. So remember, the astronaut corps consists of about 50% civilians, 50% military. And so the civilians are generally hired in, on a civil service scale. And I do believe the civilians go in at uh, GS-12, and after about a year or two, they move to GS-13. And that's about the limit, um, unless they move into management. So the uh, GS-13 is about equivalent of a colonel in, a, in the military. Uh, the military guys now, on the other hand, uh, they go in at the rank that they're at, and they're simply assigned. They're military officers assigned to NASA for astronaut duty. And so they maintain their rank, and they're promoted uh, through the military organization as usual. So, for example, I went in as a captain, you know, in 03, and uh, moved on from there. Okay. So it's it, like I said before, you don't you don't do it for the money. That's for sure. For the passion of being in space, for is it right. for, for civilization, like what what is it? So I think it's all of that. Many people, again, if we're going to talk about NASA, about fifty percent of the astronauts that that were there when I was there, about fifty percent of them wanted to be an astronaut ever since they were this high. You know, that's all they wanted to do. They grew up and did everything in their academic careers. They did everything in their professional careers to set them up to be an astronaut. And and the other 50%, I think, were more like me, which was uh, I just did everything that, that I enjoyed. And it, and it serendipitously just raised myself into the astronaut corps. And wow. I was very surprised when they selected me. You know, I had other opportunities at that time. SR-71s and a couple of other things that the Air Force was offering. I chose to uh, enter into the astronaut corps because I thought it was something that would be a little bit different and 
interesting. So that's what I did. It's <laughs> very different and very, it sounds very interesting. Well, I want to dive into that. How much does an astronaut make or what's the range for these different levels? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I think the range is about anywhere from 60 to 70,000 to maybe 110, something like that. So now these- I thought astronauts made like half a million dollars. Oh, heck no. This is all civil service. <laughs> I'm happy to give my my taxes for the astronauts to get paid a lot more. That's what. Yeah, 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 yeah. So somebody wow. asked me one time when I was on a, a presentation, a, a PR, uh, how much extra you made to go to space, and I said about one thirty, and everybody in the audience just gasped, and they all thought I meant one hundred and thirty thousand dollars extra to go to space, and no, it was a dollar thirty five. Because the government was providing you room and board. <laughs> so even though you were TDY on travel, okay. they pay you a little extra to go to travel. You know, that was the dollar thirty-five. And then they pay for the room, but they provided the room. Then they paid for your food, but they provided the food. So it turned out to be a dollar thirty-five a day. Wow. It is interesting. I've done this uh, a few times for fun, just gone and look up government pay. Because you can see everybody's it, salary. It's, uh, it's broadcast. Yep. And by the way, some of the numbers I gave are probably pretty old, so I wouldn't take those to the bank. Yeah, with some inflation stuff, but it's still much less than I would have imagined. Probably so. And then for you, with uh, the career-wise, then when you went to private sector, was yes. it like, oh my God, wow, this yep. money, it's nice to have money? Yes. <laughs> yeah, big difference. Going to the private sector, a huge difference, probably uh, double to triple the salary that you originally had. You have to make yourself valuable to the industry. And there are a couple of ways of doing that. One of them uh, is to, you know, find the niche that you like and do the hard things. You can't be doing things that anybody can do or else, you know, that, that's not very rare. They could hire somebody else to do that and then the prices go down. So you have hmm. to be doing the hard things. You have to be doing the things that they can't find to be done anywhere else. And, and so that's what I was doing in my entire career was to, in this, especially in a civilian career, was to do stuff that nobody could do that was recognized by the company as being valuable. Remember, industry will not keep you around if you cost them more than <laughs> you produce, right? So, so you've got to always be on the leading edge of that, producing something that's valuable to them that they can't get anywhere else. And that's how basically you can grow your salary. And again, at least in my industry, the salaries were were good, but they weren't fantastic. The way you made your money was by the bonuses, the um, incentive pay. You know, when they find somebody they like, they will incentivize them not to go to their competitor. That's always a good thing. <laughs> you mentioned uh, when we were chatting earlier that you did a few things that like changed the entire stock price of Northrop Grumman. Oh, well, yeah, I, I, that was probably a slight exaggeration. But you know, you've, you've got to be doing things that are valuable to the company. When you do that, of course, the company survives and the, and it becomes somewhat recognizable. Now, you got to remember though, that in the aerospace industry, there's a lot of products that don't ever see the light of day that the general public will never, will never become recognized. And, okay. and so those products, uh, they're important and they are valuable to the customer. But sometimes, you know, they'll show up in your bottom line and it'll take a financial wizard to figure out what's going on. Yeah, because it'd be interesting to create products that don't come out. Right. Now, they come out, but they're not public. Let's put it that way. 
Oh, it's like secret government? Yeah, yeah they're classified stuff. Right. So they're very important products. They're very uh, much in demand by the customer, but they're not publicly known. For your career, what, what would you change? I guess one of the questions was, was it worth it? Do you have any regrets of it? I don't have any regrets. When I was in college as an undergraduate, the draft was raging for the Vietnam War. And then college deferments went away. And when that happened, they went to a lottery system and my lottery number was pretty low. So I was assured to be drafted. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be drafted, I might as well go in as an officer. So I did that route and got a scholarship from the military and went in as an officer. Well, then the war ended before I graduated. And so I ended up going uh, to industry right out of college, which was great. And I went to graduate school, went to industry. And then all of a sudden, I got orders to report for pilot training, really out of the blue, not expecting it. I thought, you know, the military didn't need any more people. They were letting pilots go. And all of a sudden, I was ordered to pilot training. So when I was working in industry at that time, my peers <laughs> had a very funny reaction and a very distinct reaction to make it pretty simple. Most of the people who were my peers below the age of 30 thought this was the worst thing in the world. Oh, how could, how could you do this? How could this happen to you? They all had a lot of sympathy. But I noticed that everybody over 30 went, you're going to pilot training? I'd go. I was very surprised. So I took that to heart and I thought about that a long time and ended up going to pilot training. Was fairly successful at that. Kind of that was my niche. Okay. And my intent, however, at that time was to do my minimum amount of time, which was at that time six years, I believe, and then get out of the military, go back to industry. Well, 20 years later, I finally got out of the military. <laughs> and so your question about do you have any regrets? Well, evidently not. I enjoyed my time uh, flying in the military, which was, by the way, this doesn't often happen, but I flew for 20 years. I was in the cockpit the entire time I was in the Air Force. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, there's a nice thing about being a pilot, and that is every time you, you fly, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you get immediate feedback on how successful you were. Immediate feedback, which I found a little bit lacking in industry. It takes that time delay of, of your success feedback is mm. a little bit more in the distance. Yeah. Uh, so it's very satisfying to, to understand that you've done something and you've done it right and it was important. And at that time, uh, as a tactical fighter pilot, I was flying two, three times a day, six days a week, a lot of long hours. I became a test pilot about one or two times a day and then moved on to the astronaut corps. And so there was a lot of flying activity that, uh, that, that I found enjoyable. Remember, money is not the metric that I use for success. And so consequently, I just enjoyed flying so much and contributing to the defense of the country and to NASA and scientific investigations. It was a good match for me. What kind of planes? I'm sure you flew a variety. Right, uh, especially as a test pilot, of course. But I started out in the F-4 and then moved to the F-16s as a test pilot. I was a F-16 test pilot and an A-7 test pilot and an F-4 test pilot and uh, and flew 30 or 40 different other types of airplanes, evaluated some for Brazil um, and some other foreign countries. And so there was uh, quite a bit of activity. So if someone's just starting out in their career, 
or if you could go back in time, like what, what would you want to tell that, that person or your children? One thing I think that I wish I knew when I first started was any leadership skills that you can garner on the way um, through your career is very important. And so I think people's leadership skills change as they uh, grow in their professions. And by the way, you have to have one that fits you. You know, you can't fake a leadership skill, I found out. Um, you know, that just doesn't work. And there's plenty of examples of that when you, as you go through your career that you'll see. My particular technique was to make sure that the people who work for me got promoted. And so that was my goal in life was to get everybody promoted. A lot of people don't feel that that's uh, very worthwhile for their own particular career. But uh, I found that it was very useful. And by the way, can you build a team if you do that? And again, in my particular profession, your reputation is the coin of the realm. That's all there is to it. And so particularly when you're working on programs that don't get wild notoriety and wide notoriety, then it's just reputation that counts. And so your leadership skills and your ability to keep a team going and enthusiastic really counts. So that's the advice that I would give. The other piece of advice that I wish I knew earlier in my career was there are a lot of very treacherous people out there. And by that, I mean, they are basically people out for themselves. And those are the sorts of people you want to avoid. Those are the sorts of people that will not help the team out, won't be helping you out at all. And they're just best left alone. That's what I would tell my children. That's what I have told my children. How do you uh, develop leadership skills? And then how, I guess, how do you identify people that are only well, out for themselves? The second question, how do you identify people that are out for themselves? That's pretty obvious. Uh, that, will, that will show up after a month or two. I had a friend in the astronaut office. I won't name him, but a very charming guy. And, and he said, you could, you could fake your personality in an organization like this for about a year. And after that, it will come out. By the way, this was an MD, knew what he was talking about, basically, psychiatrist, et cetera. I took that to heart, and usually I found that it didn't take a year. <laughs> it was much no. shorter than that. So, but that's it. The other part of your question was, how do you develop leadership skills? I think it's something that has to come naturally to you. Like I said, there's not one skill that's best fit for everybody. It's uh, something that comes naturally to you. And if it, if it does come naturally to you, you'll be successful at it. And people will recognize it. If it's forced, it comes across as fake. You know, I think people will listen to you, give you the head nod, and then go off and do their own thing. That's what I found anyway. And by the way, Noah, yeah. you're a leader. You, you, you know, that's a good question for you also. I think leaders are learners, right? So that's a great point. Yeah. So I'm still, and then there's different styles of leadership I'm observing. Right. And then my leadership styles evolved. Like I think in my, in my 20s, it was much more dictator. And then in the 30s, it was kind of solo. And then as I've gotten and started moving to the 40s, I was like, you can't do it alone. And then observing, I think lately I, I am trying to be the stupidest in the room. I don't want to be the stupidest. But right, right. No, it, it does take an ego check to be like, all right, how do, what are we, what's the mission as, that's a, right. as a pilot? What's my mission? Who are the people around me? And then how do I support them to, for them to be successful, as you call it, get promoted? And so it's evolving. <laughs> I, I, and your point about being a, a listener is tremendous. I remember when, uh, when I lead programs, large, complicated programs, I found that I had to have a staff meeting every morning. And that staff meeting consisted of 20 people or so at 
the beginning of a program, they lasted hours. And all of my, <laughs> all of my compadres would sit at the uh, table and roll their eyes and look at their watches and think, well, I, I got to get going. And then they finally figured out that they were doing most of the talking and that helped a lot. And I was doing all the listening. Yeah. And so that's a, a good, a good point you made. As you made money, you know, cause you went from student to little industry to back into the Air Force. How did money improve your life when you started making more of it outside of uh, being the government? Oh, it reduces stress a lot. As I worked my way through college, I stressed every semester about scholarships. I actually figured this out one day. I applied for 23 scholarships on average every semester, which takes a lot of time. Yeah. You have to type a bunch of stuff. And, and out of the 23, I'd usually get two, maybe three scholarships. Then I had to work two part-time jobs and interspace that, that with studying. So the stress of going to school was, I think, significant. Which, you know, there's a saying that whatever people go through in their 20s will last the rest of their lives. Mm. That stress, along with, I'm not going to say this just because of what we're going through now, but this was during the 70s. I exited college and started into the workplace. And if you remember what was happening during the 70s, during the Carter administration, inflation was just, you know, that was a mild 14, 15, 16%. And so that was a big worry. If I were ever to worry about losing it all, that's how you lose it all with this terrible inflation. If you can't keep up with that, you're hosed. And I remember actually on my third space flight, orbiting the earth at one night, uh, looking through the window, kind of taking it easy and thinking, whoa, one more year and I can pay off my college debts. So making more money helps a lot of reducing that stress. It's interesting what you're thinking about in space. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want dominoes. No, it's like I have student debt. I take yeah, care of. Yeah, well, Katie Couric asked me one time in space, uh, what do I miss? And I, my response was, a Big Mac. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I never eat that stuff on Earth. But when I was in space, I needed a Big Mac. Yeah. Couldn't get one. <laughs> what is the silliest thing you've ever spent money on? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, like we were talking about before, Noah, I'm, uh, you know, you had a friend that, that doesn't spend much money. Yeah. I'm kind of one of those guys too. I don't spend much money frivolously. Don't tell anybody this, but I don't enjoy vacations that much. I'm not much of a tourist, you know, even in space. I, I remember you'll talk to a lot of astronauts whose favorite thing is to look out the window and look at the earth and look at the stars and stuff. And, you know, I did that for about five minutes and then I went like, oh, okay, well, time to get to work. Um, so, so uh, I can't think of a lot of silly things I spent money on. Yeah, I bought a uh, 1972 American Motors Hornet one time, and that only lasted me a couple hundred thousand miles before it got washed out to sea in Houston during a hurricane. Nothing comes to mind that I yeah. really got a frivolous. I don't have buyer's regret on many things. Mm. You know, Maybe on the other side of that question, like what do you enjoy spending money on or time on? The thing that, that provided me the most value other than a house and kids and things like that was a, a set of uh, airplane building plans that I bought in the 1980s. So I'm building a, an airplane in my garage, basically, or actually in my shop now. And I bought those plans and they have provided me hours and hours, years now, worth of enjoyment of relaxation and de-stressing. So I can get into the shop and concentrate on building this part and assembling it into the airplane and 
thinking about nothing else but that. So that's a big de-stressor. What kind of plane are you building? It's called a Defiant. It's a four-place twin. It's a big project. You have a, that big of a garage? It's that's a hangar. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> it used to be a garage. It's a hangar. Wow, that is cool. After you became an executive at Northrop, did people treat you any differently from when you were as an astronaut? Yes, they did. So there's a lot of uh, internal selling in, in an industry, I think. So you have ideas and techniques of getting things accomplished. And most people have bosses. As a matter of fact, I think everybody has a boss of some sort. Yeah. Uh, your customer, maybe, you know, Congress, whatever. So I think that uh, as a industry leader, there are certain, certain wickets you have to fill to make sure that your path is cleared to accomplish what you need to get co- accomplished. There's the legal aspects, there's the personnel aspects, there's the financials, uh, the business aspects, all of that, that, and not to mention the technology that has to come along. And, and I was an R and D my entire career, so so all of that had to be melded together into a, forming a process that could be successful. So as an astronaut, that's a kind of a funny, quirky institution within uh, NASA. So astronauts are kind of held a little bit separate. I don't want to give away any of this. You know, the secret sauce of, of astronaut dumb and the uh, operations of the office, but they're slightly held aside. And when I first got there, uh, we were building up the space shuttle program and we were starting to ramp up the uh, frequency of flights, which was the only way to make the space shuttle financially viable. You get that flight rate up, which is what uh, Musk does now and all of the other entrepreneurs that are starting this, um, Amazon, et cetera. They have to have a high flight rate to make it worth it, or else you might as well get a uh, disposable rocket. So the um, astronaut corps was concentrating on flying. And by that, I mean that their management responsibilities were constrained to specifically getting the orbiter up in the air and into space. So they were concentrating on operations, on developing crew survival techniques and equipment, crew equipment, things like that running the space shuttle while it was in orbit. Well, after Challenger, then that all changed. So astronauts started sticking their nose into the management of the entire program and into the technology of the entire program. So therefore, after Challenger, more astronauts started moving into the management of NASA rather than concentrating just on the operations, which was, a, by the way, a very healthy thing to do for the institution. And so that's kind of how the astronaut office works and how NASA works. And I think to this day, that's what's happening at NASA, which is very good. And you may ask, why was that very good? It's probably not obvious, but um, how would you like to drive a car that none of the engineers ever drove, you know, and didn't even know how to drive, right? Never drove a car in their lives, but they designed one. I don't think that would be very successful. But that's basically what was happening in NASA and in a lot of other industries too. So anyway, it was a healthy thing to do for the operators to move into management and for management to move into, into operations, which we did. We selected hmm. some of those people from around the institution to be astronauts. In industry, like I said before, you, you have to basically take that upon yourself to convince and clear the way for you to be successful. And like I said, it was 
personnel, financials, technology, all of that stuff you have to stick your nose into and kind of clear the way. You probably find it the same way. To clear the way? Yeah. To make yourself successful, you have to make sure all of those ducks are in a row. Yes. Uh, I think Elon says something similar like vector, like aligning a vector. So like all the different pieces are in a row. Correct. That's right. I think I know this answer, (laughs) but was there ever a time you thought you'd lose all your money? Yes. Not all my money, but certainly my career. There were times, you know, like I said before, I've been in R&D all my life. And R&D is one of those things that uh, doesn't always go smoothly. And so when you're developing something new that uh, hadn't been done before, sometimes it doesn't work out. And when that happens, you know, your whole world gets shaken and you have to depend on some survival techniques that will help you get through all of that and save your team. So the things that help you do that, like I said before, your reputation is a coin of the realm. That helps a lot. Your customer, if you uh, have a knowledgeable customer, then that is a, probably the main saving grace here because they'll not quit at the first sign of distress. Many customers do, particularly government customers. You know, there's a lot of competition for those government dollars. And if that's not quite working out, well, then they'll move those dollars somewhere else, which leaves their original team in, in quite a quandary. The reason for that is Believe it or not, in the aerospace industry particularly, there is not a lot of elasticity in the system. In other words, you're almost an entrepreneur unto yourself within the bigger organization. And so you have a project going that is supposed to become or achieve a objective A. And if it doesn't work out, all of a sudden, let's say that contract goes away for whatever reason. It's either a failure or the government changed its mind, or its requirements changed, and it goes away. Now you have a team of you know, 600 people, or whatever it happens to be, sitting there without a charge number. Well, how long do you think that will last in industry? The advantage of a large corporation is, in theory, that they have the ability to absorb that, and they will take those people and reassign them to these other jobs that need other people. Hopefully that exists. But what you have to realize is that those other jobs that they get assigned to, those other projects have to have room in them to absorb all these people. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, how did that happen? How did that project get along without those people before they, those other people were moved in? And so you see there's this little bit of a dichotomy there and, and a paradox of, yes, they're needed elsewhere, but that program manager is not going to have anybody on his staff that isn't useful. And if he was that useful, why wouldn't he there first? So there is a little bit of a danger there. And your question was, is there ever a danger of losing everything? And that's when that happens, basically. And contracts can get canceled. I remember during the Bush administration, there was a push to go to the, back to the moon. And then when Obama's administration came in, canceled the whole thing. All those contracts went away. That administration wanted to devote their attention somewhere else. Well, then, now it's back again, right? So now we're going back to the moon, <laughs> okay? So, so those things happen a lot. How did you prepare for that, or how did you protect yourself? Oh, I don't think you can prepare for that. You just can't. You just have to depend on the good graces of 
uh, your, like I said, you're, you have to become valuable to the company and the company has to recognize that you are valuable and that you, your talents can be applied elsewhere. What are some of the biggest or most proud moments you've had in your career? Some of the biggest moments have to do with completing a project in industry. I'm talking about industry now. Completing a project in industry that was important and successful and has legs to it. In other words, from my R&D world, I could make something that would move into the production world and, and become very useful to the user community. That was probably my proudest moment, one of those projects. In NASA, other than test piloting at Edwards in the Air Force, at NASA, I think uh, flying uh, formation with the space shuttle on a spacewalk with a jetpack, it's pretty hard to beat. You know? <laughs> That's uh, like a mic drop. You know, just like. <laughs> so that was probably the best time of my life. You know, it's just an experience that's unequaled. Tell me more about that. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. On a, a space shuttle, if you're going to do a space walk, there's a, a good chance you could become disconnected. You know, we're always tethered to the orbiter. And there's a chance you can become disconnected from the orbiter and float out into space. And so the orbiter always has enough fuel on board to come chase you down if they can see you. Because remember, it could be dark. Kind of a long story. But the way you can get disconnected is... Uh, in order to do something useful like turn a wrench in space, you have to kind of brace yourself. You have to have a three-point stance. You have to have an arm out. You have to have two legs out. And you have to have a tether that's holding you. And then you can put some force on it. Otherwise, you're just pushing yourself away. No gravity. So if that tether breaks or if you don't actually have it tethered, you thought you did, and that's easy to do, um, you have tunnel vision in space, right? Because that helmet. So you really can't see what you're doing with your hand. So you take that tether off of your waist and you start to stick it onto a, a handhold or a loop somewhere on the orbiter, you might miss and not know it. Or the one on your waist might be disconnected and you didn't know it. So you push yourself away and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you know, you're tumbling away in space. So anyway, that long story is you can get disconnected and the orbiter will come get you. Well, if you're building a space station and the orbiter is connected to either part of the space station or somewhere out there, it takes about eight hours to disconnect from the space station. So if you become disconnected on a spacewalk while you're trying to build a space station, you've got a problem. You've got eight hours of floating around before the orbiter can come get you, and you've got about nine hours of oxygen. So depending on when this happens, you know, it could be a problem. And then you're, you know, you're going away at seven or eight feet per second into orbit, your own orbit, which is not, not the same orbit as the space station or the orbiter. And so, we had to have a way to, to rescue ourselves if you're doing a spacewalk on a space station. And so we developed a little jetpack that could be unobtrusive. Jetpacks in general are very large and they have controls out here um, and they're made for a specific purpose. If you might remember the old jetpack we used to use before Challenger and it was made to retrieve satellites or something like that. But that space right in front of you where your controls are, very valuable space. You have to work out here. You can't have anything interfering with it. So we had to have a, a jetpack that is very small, but maneuverable. So my uh, spacewalking partner and I tested that in space to make sure that it worked well and that 
um, following that, then anyone who was building a space station could wear it and hopefully never use it. It's like wearing a parachute in an airplane. You know, you wear one or an ejection seat, you hope you never have to use it. And so that's what, that's what we did. So in, in the process of testing that jet pack, um, we were out for about nine hours or so, um, flying around the orbiter and we had lost contact with the Earth. The orbiter had lost contact with the Earth and in order to gain contact back again, we had to reorient the orbiter to point some of our antennas at a satellite in geosynchronous orbit called Tedris. And, and, and so then they relay a, a signal to New Mexico, and New Mexico would relay it to another satellite, and that satellite would relay it to Houston. So we had to reorient the orbiter. And so I was flying formation with, with the orbiter and doing that. So we were flying around. It was, it was a lot of fun until it failed. It didn't work? Well, it ran out of power. During this process, when I was when I was uh, flying formation, the batteries quit on it, and uh, so I was lucky enough to be kind of vectored into the orbiter's payload bay. So I floated down into that, and uh, you know, <laughs> kind of crashed into the payload bay and grabbed grabbed something and then tethered up. So that was, but it was fun. It was it was a good time. Sounds wild. Yeah, it was part of the job. On the other side of that, is it then hard to do civilian life after you've been doing something like that? No, no. Different challenge, you know, different phase of life. Uh, very exciting. Also, it wasn't hard at all. You know, I was ready. I had done a very interesting spacewalk and um, other flights uh, in the shuttle that were tremendously interesting and fruitful. So I was ready to move on. That's Earth. All right. Cool. Side. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you think about retirement? So... Retirement, uh, I was also ready to retire. You know, I had been working for 57 years, I think, 57. Yeah. You know, retirement was, uh, pretty much on my mind. Uh, the financial part of retirement is not easy, I don't think. You know, unless you have a big pile of $100 bills, it's somewhat stressful. Now, I still have kids, you know, I still have one older kid that's out of the house, one in college, one in high school, and one in middle school. And so I have to prepare for all of those contingency plans, which <laughs> can be a little bit shaky. Yeah. So that has to be accounted for in retirement. And that's, that's probably the hardest, most difficult thing to plan for is uh, college education for children while you're in retirement. Most people do that while they're working. Highly advisable. You had kids later in life? Yes. Later in life. Yeah. I like that. That's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents were the same way. You know, my, my parents are Italian immigrants. They came over on the boat early part of the last century, you know, fought in World War II in Korea and all that stuff. So uh, they were, and they had children older. You know, I'm not sure that had any influence on me, but I did the same thing. Who knows? Yeah. You know? That's definitely something I think about. There's different ways of living life. I think that's why I've really enjoyed these series, just like it's inspiring. It's like, oh, here's different paths that everyone there can take. Many different paths. Yeah, and you get to learn about all of them. Yeah, and then we well, we share it as well. I guess yeah. it is very exciting. When you were a kid, did you think you'd be an astronaut? No, not at all. Never thought I'd be an astronaut. I never thought I would be a pilot. All I wanted to do was get out of school and go to work. That was my goal in life. When I was very young, I worked in one of the offices a government office that did data processing. I overheard my boss talking on the phone to IBM. We were installing a uh, 
1401 computer at the time, a, a mainframe computer. It was gigantically huge, you know, could fill up three of these rooms. And I remember him complaining about the engineering staff was late and he was paying him $14 an hour and he was wondering where they were. And I remember thinking, $14 an hour. Whoa, I think I think I want to do that. <laughs> so that's why I went to engineering school. Oh, because you thought that's the big money? That was big money. Yeah, I was making 75 cents an hour. And with your kids, what are you hoping they do with their careers? Or if you had to direct them, is it passion? Is it money? Is it being in the science? Is it whatever? No, I want them to do something significant with their lives, something meaningful. We haven't talked about money. Um, I would like them to be comfortable and secure, free from worry of financial problems. And that would be very, very helpful. I think that's a something that will allow you to expand your horizons and put other stuff in your head that could be very useful, yeah. very satisfying. For them, and in general, how do you think about what's meaningful or not? I think it all boils down to your passion. You know, what is it that you really want to do? And not to ignore your own family and your faith, but find something meaningful that you can contribute to. And, and I think contribute is also a key word. If you're just doing this for yourself, I don't think that's going to be very satisfying. So making people's lives better, not to sound too altruistic and, and all that, but, yeah. but I think if you want to be satisfied, do a little sacrifice. That's awesome. It's just interesting. You went from, you know, as, as uh, Todd was talking about, starving fighter pilot, accomplished astronaut, executive in aerospace. It's a very interesting uh, life experience. And Noah, by the way, those were not planned. You know, none of that was planned. I think that's almost just as interesting. Which is, you know, opportunities. You do a good job at what you're doing right now. Opportunities sometimes come along. Now, as you get older, the opportunities narrow a little bit. You know, I'm not going to go to medical school, right? But uh, other opportunities will come along, and that's very good. How do you decide what opportunities to take versus not? Because I'm sure you, in your early career, there's a lot of different options. Correct. The way I decide is what's interesting. What is the most interesting? And I think curiosity plays a lot, a big role in that. You have to be curious about the world in order to, to select opportunities. And so the one that was the most interesting to me was the one that I was curious about. Yeah. That's the criteria I use to select. One thing with the NASA, which I find funny nowadays, I'm wearing a sweater, is just like how popular it is. Have you noticed that? Yes, it is popular. It is one of the most popular government programs ever invented. Now, you wouldn't recognize that by the financials, but it's true. Because the financials have gone down? Yeah. The percentage? Yeah. I haven't calculated them out lately, but when I was there, it was about uh, $17 billion per year, which I think, if I remember correctly, it was about 0.8% of the budget, of the federal budget, 0.8%. And that hadn't changed since Apollo. Now, during Apollo, it was a little bit larger, probably double that, 1.8, 1.6. And then it got cut about in half after Apollo was finished. Uh, space shuttle program started and then eventually um, space station. So yeah, it's it's been pretty constant at about that number. And I haven't looked at it in a while. Somebody might correct me on that, but yeah. that's about what it is. Yeah, it's just kind of wild because nowadays if you go out, you see a lot of kids wearing the sweaters yeah. and the hats and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't particularly know why the resurgence... They do surveys uh, to the general public to find out, you know, if it's popular, if it's not, if we should support it, if we shouldn't, we be in the general public. And it's always come out very popular. It's interesting because you, you do hear the mixed messages of like, why are we worrying about that when yep. we have people here? You get those messages too. Yeah. 
I was also fascinated and curious to hear more about what you think about in the space. I think I told you a, a little while ago that I wasn't much of a tourist. Many, many of my colleagues are tourists. They, and that's not a derogatory term. I mean, they, they love the experience. They love, uh, uh, seeing the beauty of Earth, which it is beautiful and awe inspiring and humbling at the same time. But, uh, I was ready to get to work. We had a mission. We had a purpose to go into space. We had to do scientific experiments or we had to do Earth observation or we had to do something that was useful. And I was anxious to do that. That's probably some sort of personality defect. Defect or maybe it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, feature maybe. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Mr. Mead, super interesting story. Yeah. Thank you for coming out and chatting oh, with us bet. today. You bet. This I enjoyed a- li- listening to your story also, by the way. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did making it for you. Check out the video if you haven't seen it yet, asking 80-year-old millionaires if it was worth it on my YouTube channel. Probably one of the most proud videos I've done ever on YouTube. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go build a spaceship together. And before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing from you straight up. Also, remember to go to subscribe to my email list. I put my best tips into a single short email each and every week just for you. Sendfox.com slash Noah. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. Uh, finally, a couple shout outs to our amazing team. These people are amazing. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these episodes. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Hubert, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to the team that made the Women's Entrepreneur Week campaign at AppSumo. Absolute fire. Homepage was a vibe. Major props to everyone who made that happen. Have a fine day. What's your favorite energy drink?